0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Simply Cyber Live, the Thursday long-form guest interview where we bring in cybersecurity community members with expertise in different areas and different factions, and we grill them. No, we don't grill them, but we ask questions, we get engaged, they share their story, they tell us projects that they're working on, and I am super excited to present to you this week one, Cody Kinsey. Now, many of you may know Cody. Let me bring Chad in here. Many of you know uh, may know Cody from his Nullbyte work. That's where I first came across Cody. A huge inspiration for some of the Simply Cyber content that I have been doing over the years. So there is roots there in what he's done in Nullbyte, and we'll get into that later. So if you haven't seen Cody before, first of all, you're in for a wicked treat. And second of all, there's a ton and ton of great content, labs, walkthroughs, tutorials that you can take advantage of. But today we're gonna be talking with Cody about security research. He is a security researcher at Veronis. He gets his hands dirty all the time. He digs in, breaks things. He is very good at what he does. We're gonna talk about that. We're also gonna be talking about some of the projects that Cody's working on that is absolutely fantastic. We're talking hardware projects, things that you can get involved with in software projects. He's got a GitHub repo. It's going to be epic. As always, standard practice goes, guys. Simply Cyber. You, you're totally part of the show. So I would love for you to ask questions, get engaged. I will queue them up as I always do. So if we don't get to your question right away, it's not because we're ignoring you. It's because we are just queuing up. Drop a cue in the front if you can. So I know it's for me. I am producing, hosting, and uh, doing some back channel stuff. So I might uh, not catch it if it doesn't have the queue. I hope you're pumped up. Get ready for Cody Kinsey. Let me go grab him. Hello, Mr. Kinsey. How
1: are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm freezing a little bit. It's extremely cold as it is
0: pretty much everywhere I hear. But uh, yeah, it's a pretty good day. How about you? Uh, I- I'm excellent. I'm super pumped. Uh, basically, for those of you who don't know the background, um, a couple of the Simply Cyber community members were, were in Cody's uh, live stream. So uh, Cody does a live stream called, uh, or on the YouTube channel, Security FWD. right? Are, are you still doing those live streams?
1: Yeah, sure. It's been like uh, two weeks now because I had a uh, dental surgery where I got a tooth put back in that got knocked out when I did the other kind of security working in a music venue for four years. So uh, took a little bit of time off. And this is the first time in, yeah, almost two, three weeks now that I've been streaming. So uh, this is the
0: big return. Oh man, well lucky, lucky us to get the the big reveal. Um, so Cody's over on Security FWD. A couple of Simply Cyber community members were were lurking, passive observer we call it. We don't call it lurking, Cody. We call it passive observer here. And they were like, "Hey, Cody, like come on, Simply Cyber Live." So that was kind of the origin of this. I'm glad that we can make it work. I'm glad that you got your oral situation sorted out and that you're able to uh, to talk to us. So so Cody, really quick, I did give a little bit of an intro, uh, but you've got your hands in so many, uh, you know jars and, and working in so many places and security research is such a you know vague title, right? You can be specialized in Android, malware, hardware, wireless, etc So can you kind of share with the audience just a little bit about what kind of security research you do and where your passion lies?
1: Absolutely. So I picked the title of security researcher exactly for the reason that you just said. Uh, pretty much anything I'm doing could be hypothetically researched. So it really gives me license to try a lot of new things. And it, Uh, you know, investigate in places where otherwise I might be told, hey, that's not your job. So I got really lucky because most of what I do is content creation and I started out um, kind of trying to figure out how I could teach other beginners that were on the same path as myself without needing to write everything up. It turns out that as a writer, I get bored really easily and there's a lot of other things I I would rather do, and one of them is hang out with friends and produce content, especially when I'm working with people that are also really passionate about the same thing. So it got, it gave me kind of excuse to hang out with other people that were learning or actually really, really good at uh, the kinds of things I wanted to be good at. And once I had enough experience with that, I got hired for pretty much that skill of being able to teach people who are just getting started, like you know, like how to do that. So. Um, I don't know, I really enjoy that, and I also got to indulge some of my other interests like Wi-Fi hacking and open source intelligence, and mm-hmm. that's kind of uh, one of the things that I've always been interested in and wanted to explore more. So yeah um wi-fi hacking OSINT, and content creation are some of my favorite things and also like kind of interacting with other beginners um who are on the same path of going from like a weird background like as i mentioned i used to do security at a music venue and it was not like you know like wireless security it was literally i was the bouncer i had to catch like fake ids i had to identify problems that might happen to the venue and some of those problems ended up being like wi-fi problems which kind of got me Uh, at least partially on the path of getting paid to do security research. So a lot of people come from like weird, strange backgrounds, like that's mine. Um, And uh, I had to go back to school to learn a lot of the things that currently still make me good uh, at what I do. So,
0: yeah. So, uh, so I love that. So one thing that you may not know is I've actually been doing a series of videos that are <clears throat> essentially roll to cyber. And it's like the opposite of YouTube algorithm, uh, where it's like, I, I interviewed someone who was a mechanic and got into cyber. I interviewed someone who was a K through 12 teacher into cyber, stay at home teacher. So like, you know, um, bar, you know, music venue bouncer to cyber would be a perfect fit uh, for you, Cody. Now, um, so it, it it is really cool it does resonate with those people who are in those roles because i feel like a lot of people think that cybersecurity is like this um you know like not only is it like a great field obviously but it's like overwhelming and it's too it's too difficult and oh hell i'll just I'll just deal with my my lot in life. And I, I want people to know that that's not the case. Um, so, so let's turn back to you because no, no one wants to hear me talk. Um, <laughs> so as far as like OSINT goes, right? Like OSINT is kind of accessible to everybody, I'd argue. You don't really necessarily need access to special expensive tools or, or platforms that corporations might own. When you started getting into OSINT, kind of what was the early um, steps and early progress? So like someone in chat who might be like, oh, like I'm kind of new here and OSINT sounds cool. Uh, Like where did you get started and how did you how did you fall in love with OSINT?
1: Um, okay, I got started with OSINT by being, um, I guess, how would I describe it, being like gaslit by people that were catfishing me as a teenager. Um, So figuring out um, when somebody was lying about creating an account or, or like all these other little inconsistencies or being able to like track a small piece of information across the internet. um, These were things that as like a teenager, I ended up getting really good at. So, um, what I found is when I got into OSINT, all the same strategies I had been using, growing up to like cross reference information and use search engines with like quotes around them like i didn't really know that I was doing OSINT, but I was using the same strategies that I would later use to just apply to like more databases and more different ways of finding information. Really um, the fundamentals of conducting a good investigation or or like asking great questions, like Mm -hmm. are are kind of learned over time. And it's something where if you are applying them for whatever whatever it is you're doing, it could be uh, you're getting catfish, or it could be, you know, you're applying it to a, a business sort of thing where you're looking for information about another business to either learn about them um I've, you know I've been paid to do business intelligence where like people are paying to understand where to put their money by looking at their competitors those are all ways that you can get started using OSIN and using some really really free um easy to use tools to actually make money and be kind of recognized for doing good work so um yeah I love OSIN a lot because there's a low bar and frankly a lot of people have flexed these skills in other ways that they might not be aware of so yeah if you're just somebody who got really good at calling people on their lives online. Um, then some of those skills like might actually benefit you as an OSINT investigator because maybe you're really good at knowing how to structure an investigation and all you really need is access to some more tools or like a better idea of how other types of more technical investigations go uh, in order to be really, really good at it. So a lot of people who have like good inquisitive minds that love getting to the bottom of things uh, <clears throat> sorry, uh, might actually end up being really good OSINT investigators because they just have the right instincts and know the right questions to ask. Um, and don't get overwhelmed by the information. I find um, OSINT is actually one of my least favorite topics to teach in a broad form because it attracts a lot of conspiracy theorists. And that's the problem with OSINT um, is it's a fire hose of information. And without being like a good investigator where you could like discard information that's low quality and really be kind of like almost snobby about what type of information you accept, um, like primary source information that's good, that could be verified, that's really the only way to prevent yourself from getting just completely bogged down in like lots of lots of data that you can find that really might not be high quality data. It might be hearsay. It might not be something that's true. Um, mm-hmm. And it might just might kind of distract you or make you think that you're onto something when really it's just junk data because there's a lot of stuff out there. My favorite example being there's a tool called the Harvester. Have you heard of it? Oh, yeah. There's a video on Before. Simply
0: Cyber of me using it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's a classic tool and you can use it to scrape email addresses um, from an organization. So. One of my favorite things is uh, to show people about junk data is I'm like, all right, point it out the whitehouse.gov and people do it. And they get all these obscene email addresses at the whitehouse.gov. They're like, ah, oh, how could they do this? Did they make this the taxpayer money? And it's literally, you know, it's scraping the internet to find these things. So people make up parody email addresses and put them on websites. They get scraped by the harvester and they get presented to the investigator like they're a fact. So a lot of these people then will be like, oh, I found this like profane email address, like from this domain. But really it's just something that was scraped. It's not something that's verifiable or real mm-hmm. um, And that can really be a slippery slope for people that are learning about OSID but don't understand um, the difference between good data and junk data uh, when it comes to using these tools and getting a big result back.
0: Yeah and I, I, I agree and understand 100% like so I just just to give her a call out, Jess Bishop is in here. Jess, Jess Bishop and I and a couple other people did were on a trace Labs team. Um, back at DEF CON this year uh, in Trace Labs. Cody, are you familiar with Trace Labs? Um, I, no, I actually haven't attended. I've heard of oh, them now, but- so Trace Labs is excellent. Just so for Cody and for everybody in chat, Trace Labs is an organization that partners with law enforcement to find missing persons. And mm. they can't really televise the event or anything because it's like literally when the event starts, you have four hours and you're given eight cases, eight missing people. And you have to use OSINT to find it. You would you would love it, Cody. It's like, it's exhilarating. Uh, I will warn you that it is very emotionally committing. Uh, like, you know, I was looking for someone and then two weeks later, a new story came out that they had found her um, in a lake. And I, I like literally mm. wept at my desk. Like, you know, like it's like two in the afternoon and I'm on a Tuesday and I'm just like, like crying in my home office by myself. So it can be pretty intense, but um, Jess had said, You know, I need to get back to OSINT, I really love it just a little out of practice. I want to ask you about that. So you do OSINT a lot. Do you find that it's more about knowing which tools to use, or is it more about practice and and, and iterations and, 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 you know, just muscle memory? It's 100% not about tools.
1: That's what I've learned. It's all about um, being a good investigator in terms of structuring questions. Um, answerable questions and then knowing where the information to answer those questions is found. You can know every tool in the book, but if you can't structure an investigation well, you're going to miss the obvious path to get the result that you want. So good investigators have a lot of experience with um, just constantly like a- asking themselves a question that can be answered and then uh, knowing a broad variety of places where that data could live. And by kind of associating, like, what questions get you the results you want and, you know, what tools you will use to answer those questions, that's a much better cycle, at least for me as an investigator, than, like, knowing all these tools and just, like, dumping information into them and seeing what comes back. That works. It's like, it, for, like, a picking analogy, it's like raking a lock. Like, a lot of the time, if you throw every OSINT tool you have at someone and then get a bunch of stuff back, you can sort through the junk and you can find the the gems and, like, end up with, you know, a lead, you know, something something to go with but it's not a very lean or efficient investigation. And that's not the kind of investigation that like most investigators expect to run. They expect to have a pretty clear cut path to the information they're looking for, the stuff that'll really get a, a big, disproportionately strong result um, and kind of like ignore all these other things that aren't really super relevant. Um, so yeah, like I, I think it's, it's really about like getting in the practice of being um, a good investigator, like a good question asker and making sure that you're not just throwing you know the kitchen sink at every investigation um because some of these you need to keep quiet and if you put all of your stuff through every single tool um you know you might be somebody who never does a sensitive investigation or you might be learning skills that someday you are using in a sensitive investigation and maybe you don't want to put all that information into these tools that you don't know who operates or sells information from like i know there was a third party vendor that provided a lot of really interesting transforms to maltego which is a super um, popular investigation tool and like it was kind of unclear why they were doing a lot of this stuff for free because they were providing some stuff for free that other people were charging for but it really kind of came down to the fact that like if you're an investigator passing your investigations through this third party data you know provider might actually be a really good business for them if they wanted to turn around and sell it and of course I was never able to like find out if that was actually the case, I just raised the issue and then slowly the access that those uh, developers had kind of was like closed down a little bit. But it raises the, the point that like a lot of investigators might not know who's behind some of these tools they're trying to use to run their investigation. And if it's a sensitive investigation, that could be a big deal. You know, if it's something like you say, like a you know investigation into a, a missing person or something like that, um, you know, if the details are sensitive, then, you know, doing it in a way that might leak some of that information could be really, really bad. Uh, And that's why a lean investigation or something that allows you to use the right tools and and not just throw the kitchen sink at it. It's good practice to get into trying to run an investigation that way if you can.
0: I love it. So Anisa Redman had asked a question and she said, Jerry, do a stream on structuring an investigation, please. And thank you. And Anisa, thanks for the comment. I I would not be uh, equipped or the right person to show how to structure an investigation. I have dabbled. And I was going to say earlier, Cody mentions like, throwing every tool at everything and not knowing how to like pick out the gems and stuff. At the Trace Labs event, I found I threw all the tools at everything. And then I was almost in like analysis paralysis. Like I, I didn't know how to go through the data and it was overwhelming. I mean, we did make progress and stuff like that, but but I don't know how to structure an investigation. So I, I want to use Anise's comment here, Cody, to throw it to you. Um, have you done a stream or do you know of content that people might be able to consume on how to structure an investigation? Yeah. So um,
1: the, the problem is it's a little specific. So for example, um, like technical investigations where I'm doing a footprint of an organization, I want to see everything they're using all their servers. Um, I did a, a really fun one on Scientology where they use tracking codes, um, in order to track analytics on their websites. And there's a lot of like let's just say like projects of Scientology that maybe they don't want to acknowledge with like their, the rest of their stuff. However, mm-hmm. they use the same tracking code. So as an investigator, it was really easy on a technical level to demonstrate a technique for finding all of these websites that were created by the same organization but not acknowledged by them. Um, so those sorts of technical org- um, like investigations I definitely have streams showing as well as there was a really fun one that was um, on the Security Forward channel. Uh, it was um, from passport to uh like no from like fa- like face to like passport number or something like that where i used like a facial recognition tool to identify someone who and then like use some other tools via maltego to actually like get their passport number because there was a europo rel- red notice out on them wow. um uh, but the tool behind it is uh, a little creepy. It was called PIM eyes, and it's not um, it, oh, yeah. it's not free anymore, and there's it, it frankly, like I, I had some ethical issues with it too. So yes, I, I do have some investigations where I go from start to finish with just like a photo of someone and then end up with all this information about them. Um, but it's tricky because a lot of this information changes. The, the services go up and down. Um, so a more generic one on how to structure an investigation, frankly, um, I have some recommendations, like one book that I read. Um, that is called "How to Find Out Anything." I think it was written in like 2012, so it's like not like a current technical book on like you know like how like how to use the newest tools, but it, it's a guide on how to think like a librarian, which sounds so lame until I read the book and it actually goes into it like how the best. Is this it right here? Are. Yeah, that's it? it. Yeah, that's it. Um, there's a. I think I found like a. Well, sorry, I was gonna say something else, but I legally purchased and read it Reddit, um, around that time. <sighs> And (laughs) um, I I found it to be like a really interesting look into why librarians make such excellent investigators. It's because they know where all the information lives and they know what is an answerable versus a not answerable question. And frequently in investigations, we find ourselves answering Question or asking ourselves questions that are not answerable. Um, and it's tricky to be able to throw those non-answerable questions out when they're really juicy or tempting. But being a, a good investigator really comes down to weeding out those questions and making sure you're only asking questions that you can find real yes or no answers to um, from primary sources, really good sources. So being picky about the type of information is a primary source information, secondary source information that's like, you know, like news article, like, like uh, tertiary information that's kind of like reported of or summaries of news articles. Like Some people treat all that information with the same weight. And being a good investigator means kind of like learning the difference between what's junk information and what's really good information to base your whole opinion on, and where that really good information lives, which is frequently the government and databases where you have to submit queries. Um, So that's where a little bit of my background of going back to school and learning about programming, just enough to write a little wrapper for an API that's provided by a city government to do a business lookup or something else that's not available to be found with Google, that makes me feel so cool as an investigator because there's uh the majority of the information on the internet is not accessible via a Google search it's mm-hmm. contained in databases that you have to submit a query to in order to get a response back so learning how to use those tools i use the <clears throat> the secretary of state database um all the time in my investigations because they'll provide you with paperwork that has the signature of the business owner on it you know like a, it's it's a uh, somebody who's trying to do like phishings, like wet dream to have access to all <laughs> of this, um, you know, like business Daddy! signature information. Um, companies that are, you know, doing business with this business. So you could potentially like uh, pretend to be them. Like all this stuff that in an investig- OSIN investigation, I can present somebody with and be like, look, like, you know, I know all the executives that handle paperwork at your business. I know the law firms you do business with. I have copies of all your executive signatures because all this stuff has to be submitted to the state government. So, you know, like... Uh, it really was as an OSIN investigator kind of shocking to find out that my target wasn't to be like the spy or this NSA analyst or whatever it was really to be like a, a librarian frankly and know yeah. how to like take a-, a pretty ambiguous question and boil it down into a couple of answerable ones and then know exactly where to look like that it's Fun, frankly, to it's like it's like you're going hunting, and you have to like locate the right piece of, of data that's not just what you want to hear, but also a primary source piece of information published by a government or, or something that's like so um, accurate that you can really base an opinion on. And people pay really good money for that instinct of knowing what's good data and what's junk data. So once you get started with this, um, yeah, I, I recommend that book. I thought it was uh, even though it's quite dated, 2012, um, I still found it to be a, a good foundational read on you know how to think as a, a foundational like beginning person in OSINT. So
0: yeah I, I um, love it. Yeah. I dropped a link to the book in chat. Um, that was that was an excellent answer. Thank you, Cody. Um, I, I want to pivot to some of the projects you're working on. But before we do mm. that, uh, just because we're wrapping up OSIN, and um, I, I just want to get your thoughts on this. So we did not prepare this in advance because this just occurred to me. But in today's news, Cody, um, this story came out that research is suggesting that privacy in the metaverse is impossible. And essentially what they're saying is that within two seconds of monitoring someone, one's Beat Saber movements they can uniquely identify that individual. Um, So obviously this brings into question, the the lack of anonymity um, inside of the metaverse. And I I don't want to get into like a big metaverse discussion and if it's like practical and all that, but do you have any, do you have any thoughts about OSINT and maybe how you might, have you thought about OSINT with context of the metaverse and, and being able to access data up in there and what it might mean? uh
1: well first um google's gonna be so mad that Meta is making this sort of technology like more publicly known because they've been working on technology for like this for a while like uh, there's uh settings built into your android phone where it recognizes the way you hold it like the, the subtle way like you shake maybe or whatever else that lets it know if it's you holding it or another person so with that confidence score you can hand your android phone to another person and the way they hold it is different like inherently and it creates a fingerprint that basically can recognize you at least on your device but theoretically it could of course be applied to other devices they just don't really like they try to downplay that because nobody likes that part but <laughs> in practice they can actually recognize the way you hold a phone like uniquely enough that they know the difference between you holding it and somebody else holding it and uh, they use that to lock down the phone if somebody else grabs it and like has it for a little bit um but you know using the same techniques absolutely you could use uh like all the motion sensors associated with joining the metaverse and like having all your biometric data kind of like available in that way to make a unique fingerprint that means that anytime you start interacting uh they would be able to recognize you because yeah other other companies have been pioneering this stuff for years they just like don't Blasted out as much because um, it's upsetting, frankly, uh, to think that. Um, now, of course, what would be more upsetting is this data getting breached and then being searchable. So, one of the things I do as an investigator is, if I really want to get down and dirty, is like I'll look at breached files, you know, stuff that's been put like up on GitHub or whatever else, where you can look through actually the breached password lists and stuff and see passwords. Like, I got to see my mom's passwords for the last like several years. Obscene! I was shocked. I had to call her. Um, but you know, like being able to, to look at breach data, to learn this sort of thing like that's that's also something as like a little bit of a hacker, like paying attention to these data breaches, like you do very often. So my one, my thought would be is if they're compiling this data and it's able to be applied, like if that data were to be breached, then it would be theoretically possible to, to detect somebody using a standard set of hardware, which uh, would be exceptionally creepy. And I'm sure like a cottage industry could pop up around. Identifying people using these sorts of techniques once that data is breached and, and available to the highest bidder So there's a lot of money in these sorts of things and like insider threats are a big deal There's a lot of people who know that they can provide access to their organization in exchange for you know Several hundred dollars on the darknet. No questions asked and often they won't get caught. So um, Yeah, it, it's entirely likely that in the future these sorts of data sets could be compromised And at that point they could definitely be used in open source investigations or held back for businesses that want to just kind of apply the sort of technology to for people who
0: have a lot of money. Straight cash, homie. Yeah, so I don't know if you're hearing these sound effects that I'm playing, but we like Simply Cyber has certain <laughs> sound effects and I agree 100% with you. It's all about money. It's, it's straight cash, homie is the line, the Randy Moss sound bit uh, from years and years ago. Uh, 100% agree with you. You know, it's too bad. It's like big tech and corporate surveillance and all this other stuff. And I I, I don't want to go tinfoil hat or anything on this stream, Cody, but like, it it frustrates me because that same technology, like I could, uh, my immediate thought was like, put it in a handgun, right? So like, you should be able to tell, you should be able to tell who's handling, who's holding the handgun, right? So now someone takes your handgun from a police officer or whatever, and like, they can't shoot you or whatever so or or you can only get it programmed at like a you know a a state facility or right you know what i mean so now now illegal weapons don't work or whatever of course somebody who's a security researcher would probably crack that control and and it, we would just be in the same position. But I, I digress completely. Uh, so I went I want... to
1: I actually went to a great DEF CON talk where they didn't crack it. They just made it so that the the like um, smart gun was unable to be used. So imagine a criminal like you know like figures out how to make it so the police can't shoot their guns because yeah. they can lock the smart gun to make it think an unauthorized user is using it when it's actually an authorized user. That could be even worse than being able to operate it without permission.
0: That is excellent. That is a really good, That was that a, a recent DEFCON?
1: Oh, uh, no, I, I think it was like three years ago or so. It was It was a denial of service attack against a smart handgun.
0: Okay, yeah, so check out that talk. That sounds like so on brand for <laughs> DEFCON talk too. So I, I want to pivot, I want to pivot here. So something that Cody has been working on that's very exciting is something called Wi-Fi Nugget and USB Nugget. I'm going to bring it up on stream here so people <laughs> can see it. This is the URL, I'm gonna drop the URL in chat in just a second, guys, okay? Um, and these are some projects that Cody's working on right now. Cody, you wanna tell us about um, these projects? Cause um, I wanna know about them just as much as everybody else. So I have been
1: really interested in microcontrollers for about four, eh, like three, four years now. I think they're really cool. And I started out with the Raspberry Pi when I was learning about hacking because it was like the cheapest thing that I could use really to get started doing like interesting stuff that was beginner accessible and beginner friendly. Back then you had to do a lot of command line stuff or you needed to know C++ in order to work with microcontrollers and it was um, let's just say a little bit discouraging. But in that amount of time a lot of things have changed. You can now use Python to control microcontrollers and there are web-based tools that allow you to not only control them but also like program them and flash them in ways that are much easier for people to get started with. So uh, i really got interested in the wi-fi stuff you can do with them the usb attacks you can do with them and how cheap you can make them and how they're um, very handy uh so actually i will say before the flipper zero came out i was really interested in looking around and seeing if anybody else was making this and the ponegachi was really the only thing that was out there and i was like that's really smart i really like this i took a look at the d author wristwatch and back then i was also very close to um space soon the the researcher who makes the d author and i was like i really like the d author wristwatch it was made by like a friend of his who lives in china And I was just like, you know what, I think that there's so many things that are useful and cool about this tool, but there's also a couple of things I don't like about it. So I wanted to remix it into something that was really practical, really useful for learning how to use microcontrollers in this Mm -hmm. way and make it so that even beginners who had never touched a microcontroller before would get a better experience than, you know, kind of my first experience of just like messing around with C++ and getting a bunch of errors and not understanding what was going on. So uh, the the deauthor project, was a really cool way of getting started with Wi-Fi hacking being able to create like 50 like fake networks And I actually used that for a lot of security research into learning how you could use Wi-Fi to manipulate devices like mess with phones um, Learn where somebody had been before and I did a lot of presentations on this and learned a lot So I started putting together um, some classes on how to get started with Wi-Fi hacking and it was all starring the Wi-Fi Nugget. So we partnered up with Hack5 and we started running a lot of projects uh, through the Wi-Fi Nugget, not just the original Wi-Fi deauther, author but also like a deauth detector, a honeypot project, and a lot of other interesting things you can do with it. So that led me to eventually also take a look at the uh, ESP32S2. Uh, which is a really awesome, very new microcontroller that just came out, I think, last year. And it has a lot of things that the Wi-Fi nugget just can't do, such as uh, USB, like native USB, so it can mount as pretty much any USB device you want. So that means HID attacks, like the Hack5 USB rubber ducky. And Mm -hmm. it also has a Wi-Fi chip, so that means it can have a Wi-Fi interface, which is super cool and very useful. So we, um, my friends and I worked on this for, about two years, and I worked with another researcher, Alex Lin, um, who also was my co-host on the stream of Security Forward for a good amount of time to make a printed circuit board that's open source that anybody can pick up and use. And, uh, you know, if they want to make their own, if they don't want to grab one of ours. So the design, again, is open source. All the code so far has been open source. And it's just kind of an attempt to make microcontrollers easier for people to use and more fun because they're so powerful. There's so uh, much you can do with them. And prototyping with them is a lot of fun once you get comfortable with the process of flashing them and programming them. And also, uh, CircuitPython, which is by Adafruit, has gotten a lot more mature in terms of making it easy for beginners, beginners who just know Python, to start working with microcontrollers without the need to know uh, a language like C++. I find that to be so much fun for just creating rough prototypes or running a like a. I don't know like a workshop or something where people with just a little bit of python experience want to build something really cool and really unique and the wi-fi capability means you can do all sorts of interesting security stuff with wi-fi as well so the big difference between those two is the wi-fi nugget is strictly for wi-fi hacking um it doesn't have native usb support because it's an older chipset um so it's going to be things like deauthentication, creating fake networks wi-fi phishing which is uh, when you're like kicking somebody off of a network and then creating a fake one at the same time and making them think that their their browser is like updating and a number of uh, wi-fi beacon based attacks like creating a swarm of different networks and seeing which ones their device has joined in the past then the usb nugget has a number of different things that it supports like circuit python uh, and it also has the ability to run ducky script payloads so if you have a ducky script payload you like you can run it through a web interface and the entire thing has also kind of been spruced up by a new project we just released, uh, I think like two weeks ago, which is the nugget.dev website. So that allows you to flash all of the available projects to the hardware. So if you're just getting started with Wi-Fi hacking, there's a number of different things you can flash there. Oh yeah, and actually I just realized as you're uh, scrolling through it, it supports the WLED project. So that allows you to plug in a strip of NeoPixels uh, basically into the uh, GPIO pins in the back and you can control a pretty big strip of NeoPixels um, just from the board and do it all from a web interface, which is really handy. So uh, I actually just built a power supply so I could run like a really long uh, run of strips without having the colors kind of fade at the end. But for people that are just getting started with either uh, just wanting to control a strip of LEDs or using Python to create a prototype, it's been a lot of fun making something that's user friendly and also, of course, is cat shaped and cat themed.
0: Yeah, uh, we saw Nick Barker left Coast Love um, saying all you had to say was there's a kitty on it, and he's he's all in <laughs> on on purchasing it. So um, I, I want to give a shout out to Lane Lane. You're you're like you're blowing his hair back, knocking his socks off, uh, just <laughs> overwhelming with information. Uh, this is good. Justin Gold feeling it too. Um, so let me ask you, like I'm looking at this thing. Okay, it's very very cool. I want to check it out. I, you know, like. <sighs> Flipper Zero got so much pub, and and I think it was it wasn't like they did a marketing campaign. I think it's because people kind of caught on to it and were doing videos and stuff like that. Um, I hadn't heard about this, Cody, but I I I I'm gonna get one first of all, and then I'm gonna make content around it and try to like raise awareness. But when I look at it and I see the interface, uh, just a D pad is the idea that you connect it as like a Uh, like a mounted drive and then enter and then like load stuff onto it or does it have like um, an interface application the way the flipper zero has like a native fat client on your workstation that you can use to interface with with the um, with the kitty there with the nugget so
1: this loads itself as a usb drive if you want it to um it also has a wi-fi interface so when you plug it in it will create a wi-fi network and you can join that network and then administer it over a web interface which has all the scripts that you have saved on it and all the settings you can change um you can also just plug it in and if it mounts as a usb drive either drag and drop things from it maybe have an automated script run that like uh I don't know like runs a script on the computer and then takes the results and saves them as a text file to this drive and then it uh just operates as a flash drive which is really cool because a lot of these microcontrollers do not support native usb so you have to do like command line stuff in order to interact with them frankly it puts a lot of people off if they've never worked with those sorts of things before because they're one typo away from it not working so mm-hmm. uh we found that now that web serial is so well developed i don't know if you've heard of web serial but it's totally changed the game of teaching. No using microcontrollers. So it is the ability to interact with a microcontroller device over serial via a web browser. And right now, Chrome is the only one that supports it. But being able to plug in a microcontroller, select it in uh, Chrome, and then flash it, program it, or uh, be able to just monitor the output from it is incredible because you used to have to use Terminal or some other PowerShell or or something in -hmm. order to do that. And it really made beginners feel like it was a lot harder than it needed to be. So the fact that we can do almost 100% of everything we need to do with this through the Chrome browser now—that's a very low bar for beginners. So really, that's kind of the big breakthrough over the last several years that's allowed us to do so much of this microcontroller education is web serial. Like Adafruit has their own web serial that allows you to use uh, CircuitPython if you want to make prototypes of that, um, and the Wi-Fi ability as well. Being able to join this to a Wi-Fi network means that you can do a lot of this over Wi-Fi. So you can do Uh, editing over Wi-Fi, you can do running over Wi-Fi, flashing over Wi-Fi, it's all really cool. And the Flipper Zero does take advantage a lot of this um, with Bluetooth, where it does updates over Bluetooth and has other interactivity. Um, But I would say, if I was to rank it, we are the Samsung to uh, Flipper's (laughs) Apple. Um, where, you know, our approach has been like two developers working for a couple of years now to get this up and running. Like we're still 3D printing cases, like, you know, like we're still working with hack five to be able to scale this and get it to, uh, be able to sell as many as, uh, people are trying to buy, um, versus having a lot of upfront capital and making like a big bet, uh, as Flipper did. So I'm very glad they did that. Cause I can see which parts of it are working out very well and, <laughs> uh, which yes. parts of it, you know, might be, uh, maybe, you know, I don't think we're going to add like an eye button like thing to to our product like anytime soon just because i have been looking everywhere for an attempt to use that on my flipper and i've literally never even had the opportunity to use that part of the tool so whatever money was put into you know like including that in their case at least on on my behalf i find to be kind of a waste because i cannot find a single city within a thousand miles of me that has large amounts of eye buttons um around so you know like um whereas people use the radio frequency stuff all the time Um, And like being able to do some of the Wi-Fi stuff that we do and the bad USB stuff that we do um, is pretty popular. Like, so The Verge actually did a write-up on the Wi-Fi nugget, which caused a ton of orders. And I think that a lot of people still discover it that way. Um, And the write-up was really cool. They really got it. They understood what we were trying to do. And um, they mentioned uh, they yeah they, they kind of mentioned like what it was for and got a lot of people who'd never heard of it before to want to buy it and give it a shot. So we've been trying to not only only improve the software we write for it, but also find a bunch of projects that are supported on it, and then make it super easy to flash them. If, for example, you know you just have this lying around and you want to control an LED script, uh, an LED strip with WLED over Wi-Fi or something like that. So
0: yeah I love it I will be uh, do you guys have stock right now yeah 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 we do okay yeah so I'll be like just spoiler alert I will be ordering one tonight (laughs) um would you recommend first of all should I get both the nugget and the wireless or is it duplicative it seems like the the nugget the the USB nugget is the more versatile one but I might be misunderstanding yeah, so the USB Nugget
1: supports uh, CircuitPython and HID attacks and has the Wi-Fi interface, but it cannot do Wi-Fi attacks, like deauthentication, like that sort of thing. And the reason oh. is actually kind of interesting. So because the chipset in the Wi-Fi Nugget is older, it actually has um, an SDK available that lets you send whatever you want over Wi-Fi, totally arbitrary packets. And the problem is, so many people started doing bad stuff with that, that the manufacturer was like oh my god like we cannot have this happen anymore. So in the newer versions of their chip, they've specifically locked this down and they've done a really good job of it. It's been a good amount of time now that this has been out and they have not been able to make a tool that is able to send the authentication packets from an ESP32S2 at least that I've seen. So um yeah, that that means that Uh, they have different abilities and all this like stuff we can do messing with Wi Fi is really, really cool with the Wi Fi nugget. And I would say I kind of treat it almost like a pre programmed wireless network adapter that already knows like all these attacks and all these things that I use very regularly in Wi Fi research. So because of that, i was just using it last night because i found out that one of my old tried and true wi-fi tools b ng was freaking out like it was misidentifying networks that were wpa networks as wep networks it was spamming them with useless attacks so i was trying to do like a, a basic just like kind of getting back up to speed with this tool and it just wasn't working so in the end i just ended up using a wi-fi nugget uh to deauthenticate the access point that i was working with it caused a handshake and i was able to capture it on my laptop and i was like you know this is easy so that's kind of the the difference between the two is one is specifically for wi-fi hacking specifically for wi-fi research and the second one is much more for you know like usb attacks creating your own prototypes and learning to do cybersecurity with python on microcontrollers when you've got like wi-fi and usb that you can work with including things like uh you know like mouse jigglers and other things you might want to write involving a mouse too so there's lots of things you can kind of imagine and do with this my favorite example was like i think somebody used it to make um, like a tab switcher. So anytime a certain wireless device was detected getting where the signal was getting stronger, like their parents were coming, it would automatically switch their tab. Um, so like things like that are just like cool to see a basic platform being used for all these different specific applications that might be useful for, uh, you know, someone's, uh, someone setup. So yeah, the USB nuggets, but basically more versatile for creating prototypes and working with Python. Um, if that's what you're interested in.
0: Yeah, so what I'm hearing is I will be purchasing both the Wi-Fi nugget <laughs> and the USB nugget, uh, and making content around uh, both of those. And I actually just bought this morning, like wildly coincidental, because I'm not a big hardware hack guy. Um, I think it's called the Atinity 85 or a- i85. It's a oh, little part hard- Yeah, yeah. I just bought five of them um, because buying like two costs the same as buying five on Amazon. I was like, all right, um, and I'm gonna make like little rubber duckies and give them away to the community. Um, but, uh, but now that I know about this nugget, uh, situation, I think maybe I'll have a series of videos like, oh, let's make a little wireless, uh, rubber ducky here on an Arduino. And now let's, let's take it to the the pro level and use, um, these nuggets here. So, so just, I want to round this out, uh, Cody, if you will. So, you know, I buy the nuggets, right? Is there hmm. curriculum? Is there labs? Like, how, how, how can I learn from it? Or is it just a tool and I've got to go figure out like how to do it, right? Or, or is there, do, does the site provide kind of like tutorials or learning?
1: So that would be mean, uh, and that's kind of the the thing I didn't like about the Wi-Fi deauthor author wristwatch was, you know, you buy it, it can do a couple of things, but you really need to cre- get creative in order to go beyond kind of being a nuisance, um, whereas this thing is actually capable of being a very sophisticated and useful tool with the right curriculum. So, yeah, I actually do have a uh, class that I did. Um, That I think I'm gonna be updating very soon actually because I'm using it as the basis of this new class that I'm teaching on like five Wi-Fi hacking techniques that you should learn Um, It's basically like the five strongest attacks that are are possible to do with this that I think are the most interesting and it's kind of a foundational Introduction to like using all the features that are provided like one of them is just like basically a Wi-Fi pineapple detector it'll like catch people in the area who are trying to do like a karma attack where they're like springing up wireless networks in response to networks that uh, Devices in the in the area have joined in the past and are calling out for. Um, mm-hmm. It's really fun to be able to learn how to use this in an applied fashion. So you can extract information from your phone about where it's been, or create a bunch of fake access points and see like who around you has like joined them in the past. Um, those are all things that I teach, and this is. Currently a Udemy class. If you want to see it, you can uh, check out my website, hack.gay, which is one of my favorite domains I've ever grabbed, by the way. Or you can go (laughs) to codykinsey.com if uh, you're on your work computer, I guess, or whatever. Um, And you can find uh, my Udemy classes. They're listed there. Um, And they teach you how to kind of go through and get started using the Wi-Fi deauthor, which is what the Wi-Fi nugget is running. Um, In particular, it teaches you to use the V3 or the advanced version, which is, uh, I would say, a far step beyond like what most people know how to work with when they use the deauthor. It's... Mm -hmm. um, Really cool, frankly, the the stuff you can actually pull out of a phone or get a device to do just by like messing with Wi-Fi and uh, what you can do when you can do arbitrary Wi-Fi packet sending, uh, which is what this thing is capable of. So yeah, um, that's oh yeah. And then I should also shout out if you are in Missoula, Montana, as I'm sure most of our viewers are. Um, I'm going to be doing a workshop there that is all this stuff and more um, on the 28th of next month at the Missoula Public Library, which was voted the number one library in the world last year, and not just by the people of Missoula. Yeah, it competed for against a bunch of um, like Northern European libraries for the award. Super, super pretty, and um, also a really cool spot uh, that. They have an amazing Makerspace I've been waiting to be a part of for a long time. So yeah, if you're around and if uh, everything I'm saying sounds cool, then you can check out the Missoula Makerspace. The class is free as well because they decided to fund the class, um, which I'm really happy about. But yeah, so I not only do classes, but also there will be more Udemy classes besides the ones that are already up teaching you how to get started with Wi-Fi hacking. And on top of all of that, um, I have made numerous videos covering different projects on the Hack5 channel for both the Wi-Fi Nugget and the USB nuggets. So all of them have videos that you can follow in order to try specific projects and there will be more of these Udemy classes in the future as uh, I have time to uh continue making more of them. But there's already some up there for both USB hacking and Wi-Fi hacking. And I was going to mention, so you said the ATtiny85. We actually used to um carry those and we would sell um we would sell them as just like a like a basic like bad USB tool and they don't fit very well with like Certain types of USB ports, for whatever reason, uh, we use the Digispark form factor. So, like the, they were kind of the most convenient way of just like plugging it in and programming it and stuff. But like. You'll see when you get them. They're they're very finicky. And I grew to hate them over time. We started like we were only selling like one for like a certain price. And then I just started like sending three because I pitied the person who were buying them um, and what their oh experience would be. Okay. Just because sometimes right. the trace splits would be a little bit far apart. The ones you plug in with like a USB cable seem to be fine and are okay. But the ones that just have the, the traces like directly on the PCB, what a nightmare. Like they just will not work with MacBook Pro USB Type-A um at all like you have to use an adapter so there's all sorts of like trade-offs sometimes with these like really low-cost microcontrollers and sometimes people are just like ah oh, i hate microcontrollers and sometimes it's just a quirk of that specific design um so the at tiny 85 is like super tiny um super useful for lots of like low-level projects but as you might find out a little frustrating sometimes
0: yeah like what i just heard you say is like when amazon drops out of my front porch i just pick it up and take it to my trash and drop and <laughs> drop it <laughs> so hopefully hopefully it's not finicky. I did get five. So hopefully if there's one or two bad ones in there, um, I'm able to uh, salvage. I, I'm basically just trying to make a rubber ducky. Um, I teach at the Citadel, and I taught this morning, and I was we're doing industrial espionage this week, and I was talking to the students about the rubber ducky and how this might be a great way to basically steal secrets. And uh, I wanted to just build one really quick to demonstrate to them like what it would look like. Cause sometimes you need, you know, students need to see the, uh, you know, have the aha moment. They kind of want to see um, it happen on screen. Uh, so yeah, well, so, so shout out. So that Udemy course, Cody, uh, I know that you said there's a bunch of content out there, but that Udemy course, does it have a name or how people, or is it on your um, uh, hack.gay? Like it looks like that redirects yep. to a link tree. Uh, I'm, yep, I'm looking right entry. now. I'm looking right now, Cody. Um, I just want to make sure that I can get this to everybody. Um, which one is it?
1: That's a that's a great question. Okay. Um, because I can barely see that. Hold on one sec. All right, no problem. I'll go to my own website.
0: <laughs> yeah, Kimberly, um, thank you. I'm just not sure which one it is. Is it the class advanced see. ethical Wi-Fi hacking with EPS? T- t- you know, yes.
1: Yeah 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 that's it that's it sorry i i am okay no problem so we have, i have two different classes um Design your own USB rubber ducky ethical hacking tools actually using the ATTiny85. And then, um, advanced ethical hacking Wi Fi, well, advanced ethical Wi Fi hacking with the ESP8266D author that is the one that works with the Wi Fi nugget. And that is the one that we are going to be basing uh, our new class on. I also saw there was a couple of people in the chat that actually uh, are either from Missoula or near it or are heading to it soon. So if you are and um, you haven't checked out the makerspace in the library, it's so nice. It is ridiculous. Um, it is a very, very friendly space with lots of cool stuff and um, I was so excited to see it for the first time. So yes, um, and and yes, go Grizz. I was about to get a tour. I was actually, I, I thought I would not uh, be able to do the stream today because I was going to get a tour of the college there um, in uh, hopes of maybe collaborating with them on some more cybersecurity stuff. So if you are around Missoula, then I'll probably
0: doing, uh, be doing some more events there. Uh, so yeah, that's really cool. Awesome. Yeah, no, I I genuinely appreciate that it worked out. I'm sorry you didn't get to uh, go to your meeting or check out that that situation. But uh, on behalf of the Simply Cyber community, we're very, very grateful (laughs) that it worked out. No, I'm pleased. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a quick question. so Greg does stuff, ask this question, but uh, let me read it. He wants to know the line between legal and illegal hacking in public. And then if you can, so I've been a fan of Cody's work for years, okay? And you, you, many people know him from his null stuff, but I recall very specifically at one point, Cody had to do like the first half of a lab and then direct viewers to a blog for the second half of the lab because basically YouTube was identifying him as like, an anarchist, basically. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, I don't know if it'll play into this question, Cody, but if you could if you could speak to Greg's question. But then, you know, I, I feel like, you know, there is some relation to what we teach on YouTube and, and the abuse of it and, and whatnot. I would say
1: in my head, there are three categories of hacking. There's like ethical and discreet hacking. Um, there's disruptive hacking, which is somewhere in the middle. And then there's like unethical hacking. Um, or like completely illegal hacking. Um, So like ethical hacking, discrete hacking is like if you don't need a password to like go to a router's information page and you're poking around at the version and stuff like that. Um, If you're looking at stuff that doesn't require login, if you're looking at exposed things, Um, all that stuff is fine. Like you're fine. Like, and it might, people might look over your shoulder and be like, you're not supposed to be there. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not supposed to be there, but it's open to me. You know, if you didn't want people to look at this webcam, maybe you should have put a password on it. Um, disruptive hacking is kind of in the middle. This is where like, maybe you can access, I don't know. Let me pick a random example. The, the Spotify speaker on a a coffee shop network and you keep playing, I don't know, Megan the stallion over and over and turning (laughs) it up all the way. Um, that's incredibly disruptive. And you might there might n- not be a password there, but at a certain point, you're causing a disruption and you're doing something that the business owner doesn't like. You're using their their property in a way that they haven't approved of. So even though like it's arguable whether or not that's illegal, it's very disruptive. Mm-hmm. And eventually it's gonna get you attention, regardless of whether or not you're like towing that ethical line. At a certain point, it doesn't really matter if what you're doing is so disruptive that um, it causes a lot of attention, including from people who might not understand that distinction. Um, So then on the other side of that is like like hacking for profit or like doing things where like you are breaking into someone's router, using default passwords and creating a VPN endpoint and selling it to North Korea online. That is very, you're breaking a lot of laws there. And really, (laughs) the first thing was like even logging in with with default credentials into something that's not yours that's at the point at which you're you're breaking a law and you should be very very careful about uh, doing that sort of thing Like you might do it a little bit and get away with it But the problem is like if you do it a lot and you don't realize where that line is Then if if you have scrutiny on you if you're like in public if you're in view and people see you doing something That's clearly illegal and they know or if you're being disruptive and you've crossed that line uh, The kind of tension it brings you can be really really problematic so um I say that mostly because there are ways of hacking that are legal, um, but perhaps not ethical because Mm -hmm. they cause like pretty serious disruptions. And um, that's something that I've seen kind of debated back and forth because there's this thing where like, you, you might have this power, but using it in a way that is incredibly disruptive, like might end up upsetting people a lot. And it might not be illegal, but it might erode their trust in people who do cybersecurity or are interested in hacking? So it's all kind of a balance between like what is permitted and then what is going to get you undue attention.
0: Yeah, you know what? Like it just occurred to me, there's a question that I ask guests periodically, not all guests, but it's it's a fun question and do you consider logging in with default creds hacking? Like if you if you stumble across a device that's got default creds because you know, like they didn't change it on the router or the IoT device, is it hacking? Um, Okay, putting on my cop hat here,
1: um, (laughs) yes, it is hacking. To log into a service that you do not have permission to access, that is legally protected, even with the default password, constitutes a security mechanism that bypassing is a crime to do. So technically, yes, that would be accessing a secure system. Even if the password is crappy, even if the password is listed on the page, that you are accessing. So there are so many routers that are just like, ever. like you go to their default page and you're on like a guest network at a coffee shop and it's like, hello boss, all things are good. Here are all <laughs> the Wi-Fi networks that I'm creating and all the passwords associated with them. Everything looks fine. I'm like, okay, so now I have the password to this Wi-Fi network I'm not supposed to have. And it says on here that the default password to this router is admin. Like, am I supposed to not log in? And the cop answer would be, yeah, you're not. It's a test, it's a test for you. Yeah. Um, of course, a lot of hackers don't care and most of the time, you know, I, I find that people do this sort of thing and they don't get caught because these are insecure systems that are, are, you know, like probably not being audited and, and, and most of the time nothing's going to happen, but it is crossing a legal line. And if anybody is paying attention or if you're unlucky enough to be, you know, accessing a honeypot instead, then like you're going to be noticed. And especially if you're not careful, um, it could be very problematic. There's lots of different ways um, that you can get caught. And I am now devising them for some of the honeypot stuff that um, we're proposing doing for the USB nugget and the Wi-Fi nugget. We've gotten a lot of requests for doing like defensive stuff with these microcontrollers, and it's actually pretty easy to do. um, Because have
0: you heard of uh, Canary tokens? Oh, yeah. Love me some Canary. Thinkst is uh, a fantastic company.
1: Yes, I really, really like them. Their stuff is so cool.
0: So one of the things that we
1: propose is like having like a fake FTP server that when you download something, it has like a PDF or some other file that when you open it, it pings a canary token. So not only when you access the server in the first place, when you try to connect to it, it's gonna warn them. It's also gonna warn them when you take the loot and open it from your private computer, like potentially on your cell or home network. You know? So like there's a, there's a lot of ways to get caught um, doing this sort of thing. And, and I said, like, I am not that smart at this sort of thing. If I can come up with tricky ways of doing it, there's lots of other people that can do it, too. So um, that's not to, like, spook anybody, like, too much. I would just say, like, exercise discretion and know when you could be conceived as committing a crime. Like, are you, like, if you have, you know, if it's a family member's router or something and you're pointing out an issue with them, are you going to go to jail? Probably not. But if they take it the wrong way, there's a possibility they could construe it as hacking, which could actually get you in trouble. So hacking is sensitive because of that sort of thing. Like, you know, I came into security with no credentials and there was a lot of times when I would reach out to people with a research question and they would just be like, I have no idea who you are and I'm not gonna tell you about that. Um, So like, you know, it's sometimes a little tricky to be a beginner or somebody who's getting started in this sort of thing and have a security question or be trying to submit it like a bug, for example. Like I, I find a lot of people will find problems like this and then try to submit it to the business to make sure that their own data doesn't get breached through this business they're transacting with and the business will freak out and call the cops. Um, You know, if you're not a professional security researcher and you don't know what this limit is and you did something that was actually technically illegal, that could be really bad for you when you're just trying to help. So um, that was really scary to me personally when I was trying to do disclosure uh, when I would find problems. Um, Like I found in my doctor's office, there was a security camera that somebody had plugged into Ethernet, plugged into power and then left and never set up and it was creating a Wi-Fi network that anybody could join and instantly see through the camera and hear through the camera as they were processing patients' information. And I had to have been, I was just like, this is ridiculous. I had to like knock on the door and be like, hi, I'm a patient next door. This is now my job um you know and i i just need to tell you that there's uh something here that's leaking patient data potentially and like you're processing like you are part of the same billing like like thing that i'm going through i really don't want you you know running my my billing information like right next to this camera that's just set up for anybody to join um because you're doing you know credit card payments and like insurance stuff and stuff like that so um it was really scary to me um having seen what's happened to other people who go about that the wrong way to do this like for the first time but it went pretty well for me that time other times it it, you know maybe didn't go so well um and it never got fixed so um it's always a little bit of a bumpy road when you're doing something that could be construed as illegal um especially by somebody who's not very familiar with this uh and if you're trying to help it it could be even worse uh, if you don't have a background in security and they don't take it the right way
0: yeah, very thorough answer, and, and I'm sure at that doctor's office, the person you were talking to on the other side is like, well, I don't even know like what you're talking about. <laughs> like, it, like it's I have like, no idea. Oh, we
1: just plugged it in and forgot about it. I didn't even know it had
0: Wi-Fi. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, Cody. So we're we're getting close to the end here, and I agree. Like with so many other guests, like I really wish we could go three hours because I feel <laughs> there's there's so much more to cover, so much more to talk. Uh, I know you're doing this event at the library in Missoula. Are you committed to any conferences this year already that people might be able to um, come see you talk and, and get to know you a little bit better?
1: All right, you corporate slaves, I'm
0: going to RSA. So if you
1: are having your work pay for you to go to RSA, then we can hang out. Um, I don't think I'm talking at RSA this year, but I am going to RSA. I think I might be a goon this year at DEF CON. I'm like, I'm currently talking to see. It's the one role that I haven't done. I'm flip flopping between like, do I want to speak at DEF CON this year or do do I want to be a goon this year? Because I was, um, I did merch last year. I was press years before that and uh it was really cool frankly to like take on those roles and uh last year i got to work with the norwegian institute of journalism to like introduce them to all the hackers like kind of give them a tour and the press people at defcon noticed and really liked it and we're talking about maybe having me like work with the press next year at defcon so i might not be doing a lot of forward-facing stuff but um i might be instead in charge of like ejecting uh news organizations who are um asking like leading questions to try to make hackers look bad and like providing like misleading foot like. Coverage. I love it,
0: I love it. So you you but you'll be you'll definitely be a DEFCON one way or the other. I'll be a DEFCON. Yeah. yeah. So and that's great. Like I love you're like Pokemon. Like got to catch all the badges, right? You'll you'll have the entire uh, suite of badges if you do the goon one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. After that, then I just need to get the speaker badge, and I've got like a whole kind of. I'm gonna look like an army general i love um, it all of my badges it's gonna be great
0: i love it i will tell you bucket list item is speaking at either black hat or defcon just like that week is uh on my bucket list i've never done it but one day uh i hope um guys every this year is...
1: one month before defcon i'm like i should speak at defcon and then they're like the call for papers has been closed for four to five months yeah, you're like, ah. yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i love it well we'll i'll be in uh vegas um that week so maybe we can I'll, I'll buy i'll be happy i don't know if you drink beer wine whiskey bourbon or just um you know heart seltzer or you don't drink alcohol at all but if if the chance uh, presents itself cody i would love to buy you a drink um and just you know have a chat with you
1: that sounds great no i will be there and um invite me back anytime this was a lot of fun it's been it's been a while since i was in another show i forgot how much fun it is to have somebody else get to lead it
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, my, my pleasure. I, I love, I love uh, you know, we've been emailing back and forth. I, I just love this. I love the Simply Cyber community. They're so inclusive, they're so supportive, they're such great people. Uh, Cody, like I mentioned uh, in the green room, uh, I love to give an opportunity to my guests to kind of take the floor, have final thoughts and sayings, uh, whatever you want. Uh, so I'll, I'll throw it to you, and uh, the floor is yours, uh, Mr. Cody.
1: Cool. Yeah, well, um, if you like this and you want to hang out every week, then I do the Security Forward channel every week. I'm going to be doing it every Friday. I'm now going to be running the stream uh, as well as appearing in it, so you can expect me to bring in some of my own audio issues I'm learning from your stream. I I, I want to have all the bells and whistles and buzzes. Um, So... I'm going to be doing that so you can check that out on the security board uh, youtube channel i'm also going to be doing live events i'm going to be doing them in missoula i'm also going to be trying out seattle and of course i'm going to be doing more events at null space labs in C- in uh, los angeles and i'll be trying to go to as many security conferences as i can you can let me know if you know of any particularly good ones that i should check out because uh you know things are kind of opening up again i want to start traveling and getting to do more of these classes and frankly i've got a lot of classes in my back pocket that are a lot of fun to run So um, hit me up on Twitter if you have any suggestions for different conferences to check out and make sure to pop in on the security forward live stream so we can keep up every week. Uh, Yeah, and that's it. And if you wanna support me or if you want to uh, just work on a really great electronic project, check out the Wi-Fi nugget and the USB nugget. These are open source projects. So again, if you wanna just go ahead and make your own, um, it's hard, but you can go ahead and do that and I won't care. Or you can pick one up at redia.io r-e-t-i-a dot i-o and uh we would appreciate it very much because it's always good to uh get to give people a little bit of something in exchange for the work that we do you know it it felt kind of weird to me to have a patreon i kind of wanted to like give something back and Mm -hmm. um this hardware product is something that i feel really great about because we made a ton of content around it so yeah if you're learning if you're getting started then um hang out with me on friday and uh let's hack some cool stuff
0: i love it absolutely and um I put a link into security FWD. So you're saying Friday is when you do your lives. That's yep. Yep. Okay. All right. So what time on, what time on Friday? Uh, It's going to be three Eastern. Okay. Three Eastern. So I, Cody, I, I don't know if you know this, but literally every, every single day, every single weekday, um, I do a live stream every morning for an hour, every single day. Uh, it's a it's a daily c- c- yeah it's a daily cyber threat briefing. I, I I go through the top six or seven news stories in the cybersecurity industry, and then I give my opinion and analysis on each of those stories and how people can operationalize that information at work or use it to get a job in the industry. It's a lot of fun. But mm. what I will start doing is every Friday remind people that you will be going live at 3 p.m. Eastern time, mm-hmm. and I'll provide a link. So I'll try to. You know, it's it's a couple hours away from 8 a.m. Eastern Time, so we can't really raid you uh, the way Twitch people like to raid people. But
1: we'll, <laughs> we'll try to get
0: some uh, Simply Cyber folks over there uh, to support you. And um, just really quickly, I mentioned it this morning, and I don't want you to say yes or no or anything right now because I don't want you to feel like you're on the, on the hot seat here. But there's been a request in the community. I've been doing Simply Cyber for about three years now, so it's grown and, you know, bells and whistles like you said and there's been an ask for a simply cyber con right and for me it it has to be virtual because we have people all over the world uh who are members of the community and we're going to be talking about it very soon but to me it was just going to be talk tracks but i almost wonder um if you would be interested in doing some type of like nugget training module. So the people who attend would have to buy the nugget, obviously. And then you could run some type of seminar or training session. Think about it. I don't want you to feel like you have to commit to it right now. But I think that there would be a ton of interest in it. And I think it would be a lot of fun and a cool, a cool dimension to a conference that I'm affiliated with.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, we originally created these to be something that we could do at conferences just as an excuse to get to meet everyone. So yeah, no, that would be a lot of fun.
0: All right, cool. So yeah, we'll put that on the on the board here and uh, I'll start working towards that. I've already started thinking through of like what this conference would look like. I, I really thought training would be like out of the realm of possibility, but this is why we have these organic conversations, Cody, because these things crop up and now it's wicked awesome. I love it. All right, um, special guest, uh, Cody Kinsey. I want to thank you personally on behalf of the entire Simply Cyber community and behalf of myself. I know your time is very valuable. So spending an, an hour plus with us Uh, this afternoon has been incredibly valuable we've learned a lot from you and i know people are hungry for more cody so definitely go check out security fwd get back into his backlog of uh, null byte because there's a million awesome videos up there (laughs) um if if people want to connect with you i know you're pretty active on twitter or are you still are you off twitter now that it's like burned down i've linked my
1: mastodon to it so i'm kind of going i'm kind of going back and forth i still use twitter there's so many great people that are still there and and i still learn a lot from those people although i Also have a lot of weird stuff coming up on my feed now. So I use Mastodon, you can find me there. And of course you can always find all my stuff on codykinsey.com
0: or hack.gay. All right, codykinsey.com or (laughs) hack.gay. Genuinely appreciate it. Thank you everybody. Remember tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. Eastern time will be the next stream, the Simply Cyber Daily live threat briefing. Uh, It'll be a good time in there and we'll continue the Simply Cyber Community Challenge that we started on Tuesday. On behalf of myself and Cody, I want to thank all of you. And until next time, stay secure.